when we talk about that protracted recovery for cinemas to re-engage with all audiences, we also, by definition, by necessity, have to talk about the fact that there are significantly less movies receiving a theatrical release. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by our co-host, deputy editor, Rebecca Pauly. In this week's episode, we are going to be discussing the weekend box office with an overperformance from a K-pop superstar band coming in and breaking the top three in North America. And later on in our feature segment, we will be going over all of the details of the Motion Picture Association's annual theme report, looking over the global cinema and home entertainment business and how they are evolving on a year-to-year basis. But to kick this off, Rebecca, how was your weekend? Did you get to catch anything either at home or at the movies? I did. I, I caught up on the Batman after uh, speaking with you and, uh, and and Sean about it in last week's episode. I was mixed on it, but I saw it at the Alamo Draft House's Manhattan location and was uh, really impressed by their Batman-themed popcorn. So that's that's good. I'll take that. What's a Batman-themed popcorn like? What did they throw in there? It's I don't know. It's called the Enigma because it's Riddler related, and it's it's like a cinnamon salty sweet combo. It's good. I liked it. Uh, and I, I headed out to also one of my favorite cinemas here in Brooklyn. It's a little like literally underground, underground. It's in a basement of what used to be an old bodega uh, volunteer run. And every other Sunday they do a um, a surprise screening of some old uh, martial arts film. And, and the one yesterday was... I was really, I was really good. My boyfriend and I took a friend of ours out to see it, and, and we were like, "We're hoping this is a good one. We're hoping we can we can get our friend hooked on this theater." And I think we succeeded. <laughs> what was the martial arts movie that they played this week? Challenge of the Gamesters. Okay, Shaw Brothers. No you got like kind of okay, like quasi James in. Bond, quasi James Bond hero who has like playing cards instead of guns. It's playing card kung fu. All it's right, strange. that's that's all I need to know. Shaw Brothers, there's there's playing cards. I'm into it. That's fine. A little bit different from what I got to catch up on over the weekend. Uh, as you know, we're right in our editorial deadline for our big CinemaCon issue. So it was just like, it's been just day after day of writing. But I, I did take a pause to catch uh, Chantal Ackerman's uh, News from Home, the documentary she filmed in the 1970s here in New York City. First time watching this, I've seen a couple of Chantal Ackerman's films before. This is probably among my favorites. Uh, a great pick over on the Criterion channel uh, to stream at home. Really, really strong movies. Uh, among one of my favorite uh, New York City set films, I have to I have to tell you. And on the other end of the spectrum, on Netflix, they actually released the fourth season of the Formula One docuseries Drive to Survive. I'm a total stereotype of a foreign guy in the U.S., soccer, boxing, and now Formula One. Our colleague over at the box office company, Romeo Duchenne, got me into it. And uh, yeah, now I'm into billionaires, children driving around in, uh, hey. in cars really fast for a living. And let's use that to transition, Daniel, to our trade talk segment. Because on last week's episode, we were talking about how uh, there's really nothing new at the box office this past weekend. And the Batman is going to have... 
no problem maintaining that number one spot, which indeed it did not, as expected. Um, but there was something, I, it feels strange at this point to even say that a, a BTS concert film event cinema offering is surprisingly successful because they're all successful. But uh, there was something different about this one in that it was the first uh, live worldwide cinema broadcast of a concert from South Korea. Like you said, this one, it was the third highest film at the box office this weekend. It was the second highest grossing at the box office on Saturday. Uh, Daniel, what kind of figures should we see for this one? That's right, Rebecca. It was an astoundingly strong weekend from BTS permission to dance on stage Seoul live viewing. I mentioned it at last week's podcast. I've been hearing from exhibitors that they were adding screen after screen to meet demand for this movie. And it ended up panning out, opening in third place over the weekend with $6.84 million from only 803 screens. That's a per screen average of $8,500. Rebecca, this is huge, especially considering that this isn't the movie that played in multiple showtimes over the entire weekend. No, this was a live broadcast. It was a one-night-only engagement on Saturday. So these box office numbers are just coming off one night alone, period. It actually took the number two spot on Saturday in North America, only trailing the Batman. Unbelievable figures here. And worldwide, we got to see something similar. Yeah, globally, Daniel, the film grossed $32.6 million over the weekend. Uh, that's in a total of 75 countries in around 3,700 screens. Uh, it's, it's a really Im impressive statistic, especially when you consider that, um, as is the case with a lot of event cinema releases, uh, North American distributor Trafalgar Releasing only announced this film. It's been less than a month from when they made it public that we are going to do this thing. And then, uh, you know, getting it out to this this really insanely high number in cinemas, you know, it, the, the fan base, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really intense fan base. It is going to really do a lot of your legwork in terms of, of marketing. And then also, as you mentioned uh, last weekend, Daniel, the tickets for the film were as high as $30, $35, depending on the theater. So I think it really speaks to, you know, even if it's not a quote unquote premium experience in the way we typically define premium with big, you know, uh, premium screen, sound, seat setup, what have you, you know, it is a premium experience in the sense that it's a one-time only thing. It's at a premium price point. And we've really seen that that people are willing to go out and spend that money and, and see films when it is something that's uh, that's new and different. It's live. It's an occasion. It's, I mean, well, it's in the name. It's an event. <laughs> right. And I actually would argue that it is premium in the sense that that sound system you have at home that your uncle spent seven grand to install, it's not going to be anywhere near as good as the one you have in any movie theater around the world. And it's premium in the sense that instead of enjoying one of these concerts from your home or streaming it on, a, on an app or on the computer, watching it at the movies, you get to enjoy it in a way that is unique and exclusive to cinemas. And I think this is part of a trend that we've been seeing with event cinema since movie theaters reopened in the pandemic, whereby in the gaps in the release schedule, alternative content is coming in and optimizing movie-going audiences 
with programming that doesn't necessarily have to be movies. This doesn't have to be a big budget movie from a studio or even a mid-range title from a studio anymore. So we're seeing event cinema providers like Trafalgar releasing that released this film in a number of in a number of markets around the world, we see these players come in and really take advantage of these moments, of these gaps in the schedule. This weekend, where there was really nothing to compete against the Batman, Event Cinema came in, stepped up, and delivered. This is something I expect to happen a little bit more throughout the year. We've also seen tech companies like IMAX dip their toe into this space. IMAX working with big recording artists to go out and actually bring in this sort of content for IMAX screens all over the world. It's basically taking the excitement of an opening weekend business and making it something that can work on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, or with superstars like BTS, even on a Saturday where there's nothing else going on. And Daniel, in addition to tech providers like IMAX, we have seen exhibitors go out and kind of forge their own partnerships to fill in those gaps in the schedule to take advantage of the potential that alternative content offers to some of these theaters in off-peak times. Uh, for example, recently in an AMC earnings call, CEO Adam Aaron spoke about alternative content, particularly when it comes to uh, sporting events, WWE, UFC. I mean, those are things that kind of like the BTS concert, it would otherwise be something that you would probably have to pay a lot of money for with pay-per-view. It's an event. It's a one-time thing. Similarly, we're seeing a lot of chains explore e-gaming as opposed to actual physical, you know, right. traditional sports, uh, including our friends over at Cinemark. They've really invested a lot in that over the last year. Cinemark's been doing some interesting stuff with alternative content. Absolutely. It's it's a big part of that evolution on how to optimize spaces like movie theaters to welcome programming from all walks of life, right? You mentioned sports, Rebecca. Of course, AMC and other circuits working with Iconic Events Releasing, which is a relative upstart in this event cinema business coming in in 2021. They now have the rights for UFC events. They now have the rights for WWE but you've also seen examples like Cinemark, as you mentioned, going out and forging their own independent partnerships with a major outlet like ESPN, the cable sports network. You may remember in December of 2021, Cinemark went out, partnered with ESPN to broadcast the college football playoff at their theaters. It's something that's going to be very interesting to track, to follow, to see how non-film content, alternative content can be advertised for theatrical spaces like movie theaters. And we'll be tracking all of those updates, of course, as always on our website, boxofficepro.com. But let's use this as a transition to our feature segment, Rebecca, talking about the Motion Picture Association's annual theme report now that we're on this topic of movie theaters optimizing their space for all sorts of content coming in. Now that there seem to be less movies coming in from studios, unfortunately, we had that trend confirmed in this year's 2022 theme report. Before we get to that part of the data, let's start with the top line results here. What did the 2021 global box office look like? Well, globally, we had $21.3 billion in 2021, an 81% increase from 2020, still roughly half of what we saw in 2019. Um, again, as with 2021, China was the top global market this year, uh, joining North America and Japan as the only markets that were able to 
top the $1 billion mark in theatrical box office sales. Uh, with China especially, I mean, we, we saw this last year and it's a trend that continued. Uh, they have really leveraged some strong local content, a strong local market to again, as, as you said, kind of plug in the gaps in between those, those big Hollywood studio releases. And I think that data point that you just mentioned on the markets that hit that $1 billion mark is a good indication to gauge where we are exactly in the global cinema recovery. You mentioned that in 2021, only three markets individually crossed $1 billion. That is China with $7.3 billion in annual ticket sales, leading the global box office. North America, which is US and Canada, hitting $4.5 billion. And Japan, registering just over $1 billion in theatrical box office. Now, in 2019, Rebecca, for comparison, in the pre-pandemic world that we had, that record $42.3 billion year that we had in 2019, a total of 10 individual markets crossed that $1 billion mark. So yes, we've seen some markets recover a little bit quicker than others, but we're not seeing those same numbers, those same admissions levels that we were seeing, particularly in Europe at an individual market basis. And in Latin America as well. I mean, we saw the Europe, Middle East and Africa region get to slightly half of their pre-pandemic uh, 2019 levels with around 5 billion in 2021. Um, but in Latin America, um, cinema the cinema market only got to around a third of what their pre-pandemic box office was. And again, I mean, as we've, we've spoken about before, that's nothing to do with anything that the cinemas are doing. That's literally just a reflection of outside circumstances. Absolutely. Not only the pandemic, but also content availability. Titles from studios being in the market or not, right? In the case of Latin America, extremely concerning here, as you mentioned, the entire region failed to hit the $1 billion mark in box office period. So all of those markets combined, including major markets like Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, they couldn't combine to cross $1 billion. It is on a regional level, clearly the slowest one to recover. But on the positive side is that a lot of that momentum is actually starting to pick back up again after Q4 2021. And we definitely saw that with the performance of the Batman in Latin America starting last weekend. And there's, I want to just uh, just pinpoint for a second a statistic that really stood out for me. We saw an average of 2.8 cinema visits per person in 2021, up from 1.5 in 2020. Obviously, makes sense. 2020, we didn't really have that many movies. Um, but we are seeing as well that a relatively small proportion of the you know general movie going public represented over a third of all domestic admissions in 2021 so that designation of uh, what we call frequent moviegoers i.e. people who go to the movies once a month represented 34% of all domestic admissions in 2021 which really i mean that just dovetails so nicely with uh, an increased uh, attention that's being paid by exhibitors uh, to loyalty programs to subscription services. I mean, we've seen two top five chains, Marcus and Cineplex, launch their own subscription services um, over this last year. When it comes to your power user, your best and most loyal client, they are showing up and they're showing up, as you mentioned, enough to drive a third of the admissions overall in North America. The issue here is something that I often hear from studio folks whenever we go to these trade shows, is that the problem isn't on the frequent moviegoer, 
It's on better engaging the occasional moviegoers. Studios want to make sure that we get more moviegoers back to theaters, as opposed to placing so much focus on the ones that regularly come back. Because on the frequent moviegoer side, there's been, I think, a lot of positive advancement in engaging with those consumers. You mentioned subscription, Rebecca. We've also seen that evolution with loyalty programs, with circuits investing a lot of time, money, and attention in making sure their communications with their loyalty consumers are at the top of their game. We're seeing results there, but I think that missing piece of the puzzle that studios always talk about, how do we find new audiences? How do you get that occasional moviegoer that averages less than one visit to the movies per month? How do we turn them into frequent moviegoers? And as we look through these MPA statistics, 60% of the North American market identify as this occasional moviegoer. That's definitely going to be the challenge as we look into the future of exhibition, turning these occasionals into frequent moviegoers. I mean, that said, it's definitely an issue. It's always been an issue. It's been an issue long before the pandemic. But again, I mean, we didn't really have as many films come out in uh, in, in 2021 to kind of... I mean, I, I gotta imagine that if we look at statistics for the 2022 scene report, maybe next year, I mean, hopefully we're going to see a bump in that number as we start to see more films uh, just in terms of quantity come to the box office as we enter the summer season. I think that's a sneaky part of this data that gets lost in the reporting. When we talk about that protracted recovery for cinemas to re-engage with all audiences, we also by definition, by necessity, have to talk about the fact that there are significantly less movies receiving a theatrical release. That was the case in 2020, when only 319 movies made it to theaters. And the 2021 figures, Rebecca, in North America aren't significantly better. Only It's not that much higher, no. <laughs> no, I'm not sorry. at all. Only 387 titles reached theaters in 2021. For comparison, the number of movies to receive a theatrical rollout in 2019 was almost a thousand. 987 movies were released to theaters in 2019, making it a 60% drop for two consecutive years in the films made available to theaters. I think that's a huge part of why we're seeing the recovery evolve at the pace it's going. You have to understand it, especially given the fact that, you know, cinema is a global market when, when, when it comes to studios deciding when to release a film. You know, they're not just looking at North America. They're looking at Latin America. They're looking at every other market. Um, I, I do think maybe the, the easy headline here, maybe the more the more muckmakery headline would be, oh, my God, look what those studios did, pushing everything day and day, pushing everything to streaming. Daniel, what do you think the impact of that was over 2021? I mean, we saw a major studio like Warner brothers go day and date with all their films but i mean i don't know do you think maybe that's just the easy target to say oh these studios put all this stuff streaming based on every conversation i've had with exhibitors over the last two years everyone is in agreement that it doesn't help to have a title go day and date but what really hurts is when a title skips theatrical entirely and we saw that happen this last weekend with disney releasing pixar's turning red straight to disney plus 
on a weekend where it really could have made an impact on the market. Rebecca, that is three consecutive movies from Pixar, formerly a blue chip studio for Disney, now turned into what is essentially a straight-to-video content mill that really is bypassing theaters altogether. That aspect of the conversation, I think, is what's really hurting this part of the recovery. I can't imagine it's an if. I, I got to think it's a how. This is going to affect Pixar's ability to really uh, draw in and, and snag top tier talent. I mean, the directors of these films, they thought they were getting theatrical given how long it takes to produce an animated film. I mean, they didn't direct these films to go to a streaming platform to keep Disney Plus's subscriber numbers from going down. Um, I mean, this year... And we can't really blame the pandemic anymore, can we? I mean... No. We've, we've got enough numbers here to prove that audiences will come back if you give them content to come back too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been, I think, a, a huge struggle trying to understand what's behind these decisions of films skipping theatrical altogether. What we can say is that there's no shortage of movies being produced right now. Production actually bounced back significantly, according to the MPA report, with a total of 943 feature films entering production in the United States over the course of last year. That is more than double the number of movies that went into production in 2020. That's an interesting data point when you combine it with the fact that the number of titles that have gone exclusively to streaming services has nearly doubled since 2017. It's, uh, it's, it's quite surprising once we see that and once we see this this shake out. It's not only Pixar. It's not only family films. We're seeing it, frankly, with auteurs. Someone like Steven Soderbergh, who now has had two HBO Max exclusive movies that no one's talked about, neither No Sudden Move or Kimi. I had no idea that even Kimi came out or that it was a movie. These are two movies from an established director that just came and went hidden somewhere under Batman sequels on HBO Max. So it's it's really hard to make sense of what's going on here. And I think the impact isn't only on exhibition. I think it also has an impact on film culture at large. And, and it's it's really, I mean, as you say, it's tough to figure out um, the, the reasoning behind a lot of these decisions. And it's made more difficult by the fact that when it comes to really any streaming platform, we don't have data, really. We don't have consistent data on, you know, a more macro level, what the subscriber levels are uh, for uh, for these services, um, what the viewership numbers are for each individual film. Over the last year, we did see the number of streaming service subscriptions uh, jump 14% from 1.2 billion to 1.3 billion. I mean, I, I don't recall offhand what the percentage increase was last year. I imagine it was probably artificially inflated because of the pandemic and you got a lot of people subscribing to new subscription programs, so they have stuff to watch. But it seems, I mean, I don't know. It just seems unsustainable relying so much on direct streaming. I mean, I used to watch, you know, the Netflix originals, you know, the stuff that would come out on the reg. And I've really just on a personal level dropped off because it's like, they're not that good. And I got actual <laughs> movie theaters to go out to go to like, <laughs> but I think it depends on the content, right? And that 1.2 billion to 1.3 billion, those are global numbers. When we mm -hmm. look at the US alone, we saw a transition from 308.6 streaming subscriptions in 2020 
to 353.2 million in 2021. That's a 14% bump. So even beyond the difficult parts of the pandemic, we're seeing a sustained growth in momentum of people adopting streaming services. Now, we also have to bring up here that this doesn't necessarily mean that it's at the expense of cinema. Streaming's direct competitor is pay TV. Do you know anyone that pays for cable of our generation? We're both in our mid-30s, Rebecca. We used to be the prime cable consumers. I haven't paid for a cable or satellite package, I think, since I was in college. So it's you know, my, well, my, my parents actually just made the transition. They're like this direct TV stuff. It's too expensive for what we get. They made the transition to YouTube TV just within the last week or so. That's where the disruption is. I think equating growths in streaming to a declining cinema audience doesn't always make total sense. I think there's a relation there to a certain extent when we talk about the performance of individual films as they relate to a specific theatrical window. But these macro figures, it's really hard for me to see what's happening in home entertainment and say it's having a direct, clear impact on what's happening on theatrical. There is a relationship, yes, but honestly, I think that growth in subscribers, I think that's occurring at the expense of erosion when it comes to pay TV with cable and satellite suffering as much as they have. And Daniel, in a, in a final uh, growth statistic to, to look at this kind of macro level view of, of the global industry, uh, some uh, statistic that, you know, it made me smile. It, it made my heart, my heart warm a little bit. Uh, compared to 2019, we actually have seen a 4% increase in screen count globally. Now, uh, granted, that is heavily centered um, in the Asia Pacific region, which is seen in addition of screens that is a uh, kind of off proportion from the rest of the world. But I mean, still, compared to 2019, pre-pandemic, we actually have more screens than we did then. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty encouraging statistic. And even in North America, we did see that decrease, but it's only been a 1% decrease. And you know, we've seen on the level of individual circuits, really the theaters that permanently closed by and large were ones that were, you know, financially not the hardest hitters prior to the pandemic in the first place. If anything, I think we've seen a uh, sort of resurgence from some players. I think of the example of Alamo Drafthouse, which filed for bankruptcy and was able to bounce back and, and grow from CMX, the one of the largest circuits in the United States, also filing for bankruptcy early on in the pandemic. And circuits like AMC, uh, Imagine Entertainment, B&B theaters, I mean, really getting into M&A and, and uh, honing their portfolios and acquiring some new locations from, uh, from some players who unfortunately did go out of business, namely Arclight Pacific. Yeah, absolutely. And that consolidation, I think you can see all of those trends in our annual Giants of Exhibition report, which you can actually find on our website right now, boxofficepro.com, to see how that M&A is consolidating that trend. Now, that macro statistic that you're referencing, Rebecca, that 1% drop in overall screen count in North America, I think that's a reflection, honestly, of the great work that our colleagues at the National Association of Theater Owners were able to pull off over the last two years. We had a screen count that went from 44,000 to around 43,000. Over the course of the biggest crisis this industry has faced over the last two years. If it hadn't been for that shuttered venue operator's rent money, I mean, I don't I don't want to think about that, what that number would have been. Yeah, absolutely. And as opposed to what we saw in Europe or other markets, 
there wasn't guaranteed help waiting for cinemas. It really was a massive lobbying effort that the National Association of Theater Owners had to launch, had to work with cinemas to make sure it could happen. Not only that, but the SVOG wasn't a silver bullet to save the industry either. As you know, publicly traded companies weren't eligible for these grants. So they had to go out into the market with very little support in terms of new films coming out from studios and fight every weekend to compete. Fortunately, most of them are still alive and we were able to celebrate them in the webinar that we hosted earlier this week, Rebecca, Giants of Exhibition with colleagues from all over the industry. You can catch a recap of that webinar on our website, boxofficepro.com to find insights not only from Rebecca and myself, but also from notable CEOs of some of the top movie theater circuits in the country, including Alamo Drafthouse, B&B Theaters, and Imagine Entertainment. Daniel, I mean, with these scene report numbers, I would say, you know, we're having a mixed bag, but that was the best possible outcome is that it would be mixed. So, you know what? I will take these numbers. I will I will take these uh, all these droves of people going out to see BTS at concert. I'll take it and I'll uh, I'll keep going back to the movies. So, uh, thanks again to all of you for listening to this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. Please tune in every Thursday to uh, get insights about the various news and bits and bobs and box office statistics occurring across the market. Uh, the Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. If you uh, enjoy what you're hearing, please go like and subscribe and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. From Daniel and myself, thank you all so much and have a great day. Thank you.